The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So now we come to the voices from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When I first uh, compiled all of these quotations and posted them on my blog a few years ago, uh, I said this. When the New Yorker dedicated its entire August 31st, 1946 issue to John Hersey's Hiroshima, the editors wrote that they did so, quote, in the conviction that few of us have yet comprehended the all but incredible destructive power of this weapon, and that everyone might well take time to consider the terrible implications of its use. End quote. And I continued, in light of our peculiar, peculiarly modern strain of divisive political culture, where we are forced to either condemn or acclaim the bombings without reservation, our mere opinions in 2016 or in 2021 are granted a status immensely more important than the bombings themselves. We have to be on a team nowadays. We can't consider an event on its own. And so, uh, even more so, uh, we devote less and less time to considering just what happened to the people on the ground. And so here is only an introduction to what happened. Here are the voices. Uh, of those who were there and of the studies that came afterwards. A Manhattan Project study stated that because the head in the flash comes in such a short time, there is no time for any cooling to take place, and the temperature of a person's skin can be raised to 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the first millisecond and at a distance of 2.3 miles when the bomb is dropped and explodes. A Japanese study said, the temperature at the site of the explosion reached 5,400 degrees Fahrenheit, and primary atomic bomb thermal injury was found in those exposed within two miles of the hypocenter. Severe thermal burns of over grade five occurred within 0.6 to one mile of the hypocenter and those grades of one to four occurred as far as two to two and a half miles from the hypocenter. Extreme intense thermal energy leads not only to carbonization, but also to evaporation of the viscera. And Richard Rhodes says, people exposed within half a mile of the little boy fireball, little boy being the name given to the first bomb, the little boy fireball, that is, were seared to bundles of smoking black char in a fraction of a second as their internal organs boiled away. Doctor, a patient commented to Michikio Hachia a few days later, a human being who has been roasted becomes quite small, doesn't he? The small black bundles now stuck to the streets and bridges and sidewalks of Hiroshima numbered in the thousands. 
and this is the voice of a junior college girl in Hiroshima. Screaming children who have lost sight of their mothers. Voices of mothers searching for their little ones. People who can no longer bear the heat, cooling their body in cisterns. Everyone among the fleeing people dyed red with blood. And here's a 19-year-old woman in Hiroshima. I saw for the first time a pile of burned bodies in a water tank by the entrance to the broadcasting station. Then I was suddenly frightened by a terrible sight in the street, 40 to 50 meters from the Shukin Garden. There was a charred body of a woman standing frozen in a running posture, with one leg lifted and her baby tightly clutched in her arms. Who on earth could she be? Here is a junior college woman in Hiroshima. At the base of the bridge, inside a big cistern that had been dug out there, was a mother weeping and holding above her head a naked baby that was burned bright red all over its body. And another mother was crying and sobbing as she gave her burned breast to her baby. Here is a husband and wife in Hiroshima. While taking my severely wounded wife out to the riverbank by the side of the hill of Nakahiromachi, I was horrified indeed at the sight of a stark naked man standing in the rain with his eyeball in his palm. He looked to be in great pain, but there was nothing I could do for him. Here's another witness in Hiroshima. There were so many burned at a first aid station that the odor was like drying squid. They looked like boiled octopuses. I saw a man whose eye had been torn out by an injury, and there he stood with his eye resting in the palm of his hand. What made my blood run cold was that it looked like the eye was staring at me. Here's a boy who was in the third grade at Hiroshima. Men whose whole bodies were covered with blood, and women whose skin hung from them like a kimono, plunged shrieking into the river. All these become corpses and their bodies are carried by the current toward the sea. I got terribly thirsty, so I went to the river bank. From upstream, a great many black and burned corpses came floating down the river. I pushed them away and drank the water. At the margin of the river, there were corpses lying all over the place. Here's a girl who was in the fifth grade at Hiroshima. I do not know how many times I called, begging that they would cut off my burned arms and legs. Here is a six-year-old boy in Hiroshima. The night, that night, brother's body swelled up terribly badly. He looked just like a bronze Buddha. And here's a young woman in Hiroshima. We gathered the dead bodies and made big mountains of the dead and put oil on them and burned them. And people who were unconscious woke up in the piles of the dead when they found themselves burning and came running out. And this is a fourth grader in Hiroshima. At the site of the Japanese Red Cross Hospital, the smell of the bodies being cremated is overpowering. 
Too much sorrow makes me feel like a stranger to myself. And yet, despite my grief, I cannot cry. And uh, there was a, a doctor, a Japanese doctor wounded by the bomb, who tended to the other survivors. His name was Michikio Haihia. And he reported this dream, having this dream after the bombing. It seems that I was in Tokyo after the great earthquake, and around me were decomposing bodies heaped in piles, all of whom were looking right at me. I saw an eye sitting on the palm of a girl's hand. Suddenly it turned and leapt into the sky, and then it came flying back towards me, so that, looking up, I could see a great bare eyeball bigger than life hovering over my head staring point-blank at me. I was powerless to move. I awakened short of breath and with my heart pounding. And here is almost all of the remaining quotes here are from Robert Oppenheimer. Here is one quote from Oppenheimer. We took this tree with a lot of ripe fruit on it and shook it hard, and out came radar and atomic bombs. Of course, radar was invented uh, uh, during the Second World War. The whole wartime spirit was one of frantic and rather ruthless exploitation of the known. And here is Robert Oppenheimer to the American Philosophical Society. We have made a thing, a most terrible weapon, that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world, a thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil, and by so doing we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man. And here is another quote from Oppenheimer. The people of the world must unite or they will perish. This war that has ravaged so much of the earth has written these words. The atomic bomb has spelled them out for all men to understand. Other men have spoken them in other times of other wars of other weapons. They have not prevailed. There are some, misled by a false sense of human history, who hold that they will not prevail today. It is not for us to believe that. By our works we are committed, committed to a world united, before the common peril in law and in humanity. And uh, I guess that's a mistake because I read that that one yesterday. But it's bearing in mind that the option uh, is not a must. Um, I cannot put myself back to the time of World War II and its and its finally ending, and the anxieties uh, of the Cold War as it began, and then on top of that of being Robert Oppenheimer and having the anxieties and. Uh, pride and regret and all of it mixed into his head as well. But at the same time, we cannot say must, the peoples of the world must unite or they will perish, since, uh, since the fact is, since 1945, we have neither united nor perished. We have simply gone on. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer again. In some sort of crude sense, which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish, the physicists have known sin. 
And this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. This is a knowledge which they cannot lose. The physicists have known sin, which I think is a remarkable thing to say. Uh, Oppenheimer's fellow physicist I.I. Robbie uh, did not think that was such a wonderful remark. He said, that sort of crap, we never talked about it that way. He felt sin. Well, he didn't know who he was. Oppenheimer was full of too many humanities and had a tendency to make things sound mystical. Uh, here is Henry Wallace. He said, The guilty consciousness of the atomic bomb scientists is one of the most astounding things I have ever seen. And here is Robert Oppenheimer upset uh, late in life over a fictional play about him. And Oppenheimer says this, What I have never done, but which the play shows, is to express regret for doing what I did and could at Los Alamos. In fact, on the varied and recurrent occasions, I have reaffirmed my sense that, with all the black and white, that was something I did not regret. He says, though, that he was mostly upset with the long and totally improvised final speech I am supposed to have made, in which indeed it affirms such regret. My own feelings about responsibility and guilt have always had to do with the present, and so far in this life that has more that has been more than enough to occupy me. And Oppenheimer again, this is the last one from him, taken as a story of human achievement and human blindness, the discoveries in the sciences are among the great epics. And here is James B. Conant. I did not see in 1917, and do not see in 1968, why tearing a man's guts out by a high explosive shell is to be preferred to maiming him by attacking his lungs or skin. All war is a miracle. Oh, all war is immoral. Logically, the 100% pacifist has the only impregnable position. Once that is abandoned, as it is when a nation becomes a belligerent, one can talk sensibly only in terms of violation of agreements about the way war is conducted, or of the consequences of a certain tactic or weapon. And here's the very last quotation from Niels Bohr. Only by extending this powerful weapon to other countries could we guarantee that it would not be used in the future? Now that was as far as I got a few years ago when I was discussing this with my wife and posting it on my blog. Um, and she finally said, um, I mean, you have to post something about what you believe, what your conclusions are about this. And uh, I haven't read this since then, but I will I will read it now and see what my reactions are uh, five years later. What to make of any of these voices? This week's episodes are the sum of something I have wanted to put together quite literally for years, and talking with my wife about each of them has convinced me that I have to at least try to insert my own voice here. So consider some of the many justifications put forth for dropping the atomic bomb. These are the reasons uh, that are 
specifically in regards to war with Japan. Uh, it will end the war. It is necessary to end the war in this way because conventional troop warfare against Japan is proving so brutal. Such brutality is the unfortunate result of certain aspects of culture specific to Japan, which refuse surrender of any kind. As a result, a land invasion of Japan by American troops will likely result in the deaths of more Japanese civilians, not to mention American soldiers, than the dropping of the atomic bomb, even two of them. This is borne out by the fact that America's firebombing destruction of 50 to 90 percent of two dozen Japanese cities did not suffice to bring about Japanese surrender, and because dropping the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima did not prompt immediate surrender either, hence the second one on Nagasaki. And that for all of these and many other unfortunate historic, cultural, and technological coincidences, it cannot be forgotten that Japan initiated aggression with the United States, and that, whatever the sins of the United States then or since, it is unlikely that it would have ever firebombed Japan or used atomic weapons against them under any other circumstances. In short, the conclusion seems to be that war is not only hell, but an unpredictably escalating hell in which continually hellish things happen, and that, and that Japan should have expected this when they initiated it, and that any anyone who starts a war should expect it. The United States should expect it when they do the same thing. And finally, uh, specifically in regards to Japan, Japan and Germany both had atomic bomb programs of their own, and there is no reason to believe that either would have withheld its use had they had the chance to use them on America, or uh, if Germany had used them uh, on the European continent. And if the Blitz against Britain is any example, there is no reason to believe that if the United States had been closer to either Japan or Germany, that either country would have kept itself from firebombing the United States. And so what are our options against such enemies? Um, I don't really have any patience for the people who uh, hate America uh, so unreservedly um, that they can't at least uh, admit to this. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to that. that uh, anyhow, um, as to the reasons that are specifically in regards to demonstrating the bomb's use on Japan, without dropping it on civilians. That was a plan at one point, to uh, uh, get a bunch of uh, Japanese officials together, show them what the bomb looks like uh, in, a, in an unpopulated area, and hope that they uh, surrender just by seeing the power of the bomb. Uh, with the nature of the United States War of Japan as a guide, a demonstration of the atomic bomb for Japanese officials to be exploded in an unpopulated area seems unlikely to convince them. Because of the limited number of atomic bombs in August 1945, quite literally there were two of them, quote, wasting a bomb in this way was unacceptable. And the worry was if a demonstration is agreed to and the bomb is a dud, risking that outcome in front of an already stubborn enemy is also unacceptable. 
the reasons regarding the bombs placed in post-war politics and human life. Uh, as I quote, as I mentioned, it will end not just this war, but will be so terrible that we'll end war altogether. I should have said that before I get to my own thoughts, uh, I'm listing the various justifications for its use. Um, no post-war peace or the organization like the United, United Nations can honestly be entered into without the participating countries knowing about the atomic bomb, so we have to drop it. Uh, the anxiety of knowing that nuclear weapons exist, but not knowing what their actual destructive capabilities are, is much worse than the anxiety derived from knowing full well what their destructive capabilities are, i.e. knowledge, even the worst knowledge, is always better. And in the long run of history, um, where history has no sympathies, uh, there are always people and places like Hiroshima and Nagasaki who are unfortunately offered up to provide us with that knowledge. So, whether we agree with the use of nuclear weapons or not, to me anyway, the reasons given in the third section are beyond ridiculous and are, as was put by my wife, willfully and even poetically naive. Uh, the third section being the one I just read, that it will end all war, that the United Nations and other organizations can't be entered into without knowledge of the bomb, and that uh, the anxiety of knowing about nuclear weapons uh, is better. We are better knowing what they do than not knowing what they do. Um, willfully and poetically naive. They are the result of scientists and politicians who are immensely intelligent, but obviously immensely short-sighted and even desperate. The reasons given in the second section, while based on the limited availability of bombs at the time, still arise mostly from the belief that Japan was and continued to be stubborn beyond measure and unwilling to surrender, which leaves the real reasons for dropping the atomic bomb, that is, the real reasons worth talking about that don't just seem silly or naive, to be issues mentioned in the first second, namely, it will end the present war War against Japan has been particularly brutal, and surrender must be forced somehow. And it did end the war. Was there another way to end the war? There is no way of knowing how much longer the war with Japan would have been continued. But both sides appear to have been ready to keep throwing their young men at each other for years to come. And since America's actions since World War II might make it easy to say that we dropped the bomb on Japan because it was a culture so obviously other than our own, so obviously alien, we must remember that many of those who worked on the bomb did so in the hopes that it would be used, if at all, against Germany in Europe. The racial component, even though it obviously existed, was not a primary factor in dropping the bomb on Japan. Rather, and quite simply, those fallible human beings who decided to drop the bomb came to that conclusion using the best collection of knowledge, instinct, wishful thinking, and bias that they had at hand. If we are critical of the United States and its use of knowledge, instinct, wishful thinking, and bias, we have to be just as critical of the culture of Germany which began the war and of Japan which joined in. 
Indeed, we would think of the Holocaust much differently than we do today, if it were even remotely possible that, without Germany doing it first, the Jews of Europe would have gladly constructed concentration camps to kill millions of Germans instead. We might even say that if Japanese culture had been slightly different, they would have surrendered sooner, or surrendered along with Germany before the bomb was even complete. I don't say this to blame anyone. From the point of view of today, the issue is not blame, but understanding. And we must try to imagine what an experience of total war was like back then. Given that there, are, that there is no reason to believe that Japan or Germany would have hesitated in using incendiary or atomic bombs on the east or west coast of America, the question more generally is what else can a country do against such an enemy but try to do it to them first? Human nature and history being what it is. Human nature being what it is and history teaching us what it does. George Orwell usually no fan of military force, and rarely a fan of Britain's government, nevertheless realized that the greater enemy, when it arose in the form of Nazism, and had no hesitation saying that, to those who objected to the bombing of civilians in Germany, quote, there is something very distasteful in accepting war as an instrument, and at the same time, wanting to dodge responsibility for its, more, for its more barbarous features. Pacifism is a tenable position, provided that you are willing to take the consequences. George Orwell's contemporary, the French diarist Jean Gehenno, himself usually a pacifist, had to admit, I will never believe that men are made for war, but I know that they are not made for servitude either. In other words, no one that I know who wishes the bombs hadn't been dropped also wishes Japan and Germany had won, or wishes that they were living under those governments rather than our own. To be frank, and again I say this more in shame of humanity than in praise of it, those who wonder if lesser use of force could have won the war against Germany and Japan are asking the question, basking in the luxury of a sad victory, purchased with the very excesses they deplore. Indeed, this is what sickens most people, that their lives today exist with the atomic bomb as a reluctant inheritance. It doesn't seem right to sully our liberation of Europe and of the concentration camps with the atomic bomb, but every national virtue has its national vice, existing almost always concurrently, and there is no unknotting them. All of our lives are muddied in this way. The reason the bomb was dropped then seems to be the same reason it was developed in the first place. The United States was afraid of a world where another country had the bomb and they did not. This appears to be a truth without escape, that this is just the way humanity acts, that is, largely out of fear and that, and that until the world is rid of aggressors with any inkling of power, this will not change, this fear. Learning to understand and cope with the unavoidable ugliness of our species seems much more worthwhile than becoming a proponent of, quote, world peace, or trotting around signs which say, end all wars, since it is clear that alongside our tribalism, arrogance, and fear, such peace belongs to another world.
And until that other world appears, our tribalism and arrogance and fear are, like the decision to drop the bomb, both a travesty and a necessity, both an atrocity and a terrifying attempt at something good, both something that can be mourned but cannot be apologized for, something to be regretted, not as if it hadn't been done, but regretted in the sense that human beings are the way they are, regretted in the sense that atomic weapons became an option at all, regretted in the sense that human beings, apparently so intelligent, can yet so easily back themselves into a corner where the development and use of such weapons becomes unavoidable. The only response I can find to such a situation in which war will always be with us is to find a way to wage it without pride. And one of the only scriptures or revered documents of any kind that seems to reflect this sad sense of how humanity actually operates is the 31st stanza of the Tao Te Ching, which says that weapons are tools of fear. A decent man will avoid them except in the direst necessity. And it concludes with these words. His enemies are not demons, but human beings like himself. He doesn't wish them personal harm, nor does he rejoice in victory. How could he rejoice in victory and delight in the slaughter of men? He enters battle gravely, with sorrow and with great compassion, as if he were attending a funeral. You don't avoid battle, but you go into battle as if you were attending a funeral. Yeah. yeah it's hard to beat that bit from the Tao Te Ching. I will add one more thing. And I just came across it today. Uh, if we want to change things, if we want actual peace, or at least a little more peace, and a little less antagonism and violence, uh, the point does not seem to be uh, to outlaw the weapons. Uh, it seems to be to reform the minds. And as I've been saying, uh, there's if you take the sum total of death and destruction and suffering, that basic prejudice of all kinds from, uh, in, from between countries and cultures, languages and religions, uh, uh, races, um, all of that put together, uh, the atomic bomb is just a matter of, uh, is almost an anecdote. It's a matter of killing people large numbers of people faster than you would have otherwise. Um, the root cause is not, the root, and the root thing to mourn is not that we can kill that many people in three seconds. It is that we find the need to kill them at all. And I came across this, uh, the following in a book about World War I called A World Undone by G.J. Meyer. And if you're looking for a good one-volume history of the First World War, this is a pretty good one. And it talks about, uh, this is from a section called Hearts and Minds about the propaganda of the war. Um, and G.J. Meyer says this, Inevitably, to the extent that the propaganda was effective, it made an end to the fighting more difficult to achieve. And now he quotes uh, someone you thought would have known better and would have been intelligent enough 
but of course he had his own issues, and this is Rudyard Kipling. Uh, so when Rudyard Kipling is saying this, you can only imagine what uh, the farmer or the office worker or the machinist is saying. Rudyard Kipling said, however the world pretends to divide itself, there are only two divisions in the world today, human beings and Germans. And of course, there's a German writer out there saying the same thing about the English and the French. Uh, a few pages later, G.J. Myers says, um, talking about press censorship, of course, it's the press. Uh, and how they did their job of assuring their populations that the war was being won and along the way depicting the enemy as evil incarnate. Their methods were predictable and in retrospect seem sometimes seem ridiculous. The German storyline was that the Reich was fighting a defensive war against a cabal of unscrupulous enemies determined to destroy it. The British and French followed an exactly opposite script one in which they were defending civilization against Huns who wanted to rule the world. Even the atrocity stories that were staples in the newspapers of the Entente were mirrored in those of the Central Powers. The Germans were reported to be cutting off the hands of French boys so that they could never become soldiers, to be raping children and bayoneting infants. The German public was told that the Russians were poisoning the lakes of East Prussia and cutting off the limbs of captured German soldiers. And the French and Belgians made a specialty of gouging out prisoners' eyes. Lying was endemic. Newspapers ran old photographs of Russian pogroms against Jews as evidence of Germany's rape of Belgium. And officials with access to the facts were not immune. David Lloyd George, long before he became Prime Minister of Britain, was declaring in the public that the new philosophy of Germany is to destroy Christianity. And so you see my point. Uh, there's, there, there's no, uh, there's, there was no point in World War I in the midst of it or after saying, let's get rid of these machine guns, let's get rid of poison gas, but then do nothing about the nature of propaganda, of what people are being taught, what people are being told. In this case, it's the press doing it, but then uh, it's parents teaching their children, it's teachers teaching children, uh, it's friends getting a drink or dinner, uh, trading uh, stories like this. And this is history as well. Um, you have the uh, all the early suspicion about the early Christian church that they're cannibals. Um, anybody who uh, is seen to be different from you uh, is usually in the ancient and medieval world. They either engage in some sort of cannibalism, they want to rape uh, your women, and they want to kidnap your children, and that's basically uh, some version of that is QAnon today. When the world gets messed up and when there's high anxiety, uh, the assumption is is that your enemy, whoever the enemy is, is coming after your children, even though uh, that is never actually true. Blood libels against Jews, um, anything that you want to think of. Uh, uh, the same stories told by Germans against the French, that the French would tell against the Germans, etc., etc. And finally, G.J. Meyer says, uh, the results of all the propaganda would be tragic. By raising the stakes of the war beyond the limits of reason, the propagandists ensured that whichever side lost would feel terribly 
irredeemably wronged, and that whichever side won would find it difficult to deal rationally with the populations that it had defeated. So it's almost no surprise at all that you end up with another war uh, where the other side is demonized and, uh, and one that just has a slight advance in weaponry. Um, that seems to be the key here, not the fact that it was used, but the reasons that it came to be used at all. It's almost an accident that uh, the discovery of uh, the, the realization that a bomb could be made uh, happened just before the war. Um, it would have happened eventually and preceding some other war in the future that hadn't happened then. What we need to do, if we need to do anything at all, is look at how we look at how we deal with other people. Look at how we teach our children to deal with other people, whoever those other people are. Now there is another side to this, of course. Um, I don't think I will get to it this year. When I repost all of these next year, I will probably have add an extra episode to it. But if anyone wants to read a very good book, um, I would recommend Among the Dead Cities, The History and Moral Legacy of the World War II Bombing of Civilians in Germany and Japan by A.C. Grayling. I read this a few years ago and I meant, I've been meaning since then, to uh, add quotations from that book to this series, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. I still remained unconvinced, but it is something that is worth looking at. Um, I hope that this has been fruitful in some way. Uh, it has been sort of a powerful experience to read all of these words out loud, and I hope to do it again next year. Thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.